According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through Scripture. We are in, <coughs> looking at Sheol here, in Proverbs 15, and uh, really verse 24, the path of life leads upward for the wise so that he may keep away from Sheol below. And really, there's a lot that we did with this a week ago. I want to tie together those loose ends here this morning before we get ready for uh, verses 25 and following. Uh, the Lord will tear down the house of the proud, but He will establish the boundary of the widow. And uh, it goes on from there, from there. So there's a section really that starts in verse 25 that encompasses 26, 27, 28. And uh, so we'll save those for when we come back in a couple of weeks. Uh, let's just wrap up what we have here this morning dealing with Sheol and dealing with the uh, the stability that we should have here in the church age. Before we do any of that though, let's take a moment for silent prayer and call upon our Father to bless our time, to quiet our hearts, to implant His Word in our soul. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have to assemble together. We thank you, Father, for this privilege. It is a joy and it's a delight. And sometimes we forget, Father, that uh, that you order us to do this because it's so fun to do. It's an easy order to obey, uh, that we come boldly before you. We're diligent to present ourselves as workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And so, Father, we thank you that you've made this provision again today. We call upon your faithfulness, Father, to bless our time together. Open the eyes of our understanding. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so last week we introduced main point 17, and with a reference to Sheol. And uh, Sheol is a, really is an enigma as far as the Hebrew term is concerned, and, and it's rendered as Hades in the uh, Septuagint when they took the, the Hebrew Old Testament and translated it into Greek. And uh, Hades, Sheol, as it were, this is the realm of the dead. It is the depart realm of the departed spirits. It is, it is where you go when you die. And this is true whether you're saved or not. Uh, believers and unbelievers alike go to Sheol. What we learn, though, is that, uh, and, and so I guess in, uh, in, uh, in Old Testament theology or in Old Testament cosmology, there really is no distinction as to be found there. And it's not until you get to Luke 15 that Jesus points out that there's a compartment there of, of comfort called Abraham's bosom, and then there's a compartment of, of torments, and, and they are, uh, they're, they're visible from one from another. You can look at some distance and, and a great chasm and no way to cross, but you can shout across and you can be heard and there can, a, a dialogue can take place, such as happens here with Abraham and the rich man in, in Luke 15. And so the idea of Sheol is one that um, is is useful to study, and sometimes it appears to be a uh, just a pure synonym for the grave, and it appears to be the idea of well, where does not only where does the soul go, but sometimes it's used by metonymy to represent just where does the body go? The body goes into the grave, and so in the grave, uh, there's no singing, there's no worship, there's no music, there's no praise. You know, the psalmist might say, "Who can praise you in the grave?" See, and and so there's different understandings of Sheol, and just based on usage, um, we're left with kind of a, a fuzzy spectrum of of an understanding, and, and we're fine, we're fine because 
That may be the Old Testament usage, which undoubtedly sparked the debates between Pharisees and Sadducees and some The the Sadducees said that there was no such thing as resurrection, that everyone just goes to Sheol and that's the next life. Um, The Pharisees said, well, wait a minute, no, yes, we all go to Sheol, but there is a next life and we will stand upon the earth once again. And Job had that understanding of a future resurrection. So uh, these things uh, are are worth looking at. In the Old Testament, uh, Sheol is unavoidable. And we could say the same thing in the New Testament. Everybody dies other than the rapture generation. So physical death, Sheol, is unavoidable. Uh, Believers walking the path of life. So when it says we can keep away from it, how do we keep away from it? If if we're all going to get there eventually. The path of life leads upward for the wise that he may keep away from Sheol below. And so we do want to keep ourselves on the straight and narrow. We do want to keep ourselves away from Sheol below. And that is uh, we will get there eventually, but we don't We don't take actions on our part today through sin, uh, through rebellion against the will of God to accelerate the process. We uh, we keep ourselves away from Sheol as long as as we can on our part by walking the straight and narrow and then God will take us there when the time comes. And that's what it's about. So steering clear of the sins that lead to premature departure from physical life. And we can shorten our lifespan. You know, suicide will shorten your lifespan. Uh, carnality will shorten your lifespan because of of uh, the health impact of of a carnal lifestyle, because of diseases you're subject to, or even just because of criminals you're subject to and other sinners you're subject to, your partners in crime in uh, in those lifestyles. In fact, it's 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 uh, horrifying in certain communities, and we'll just say it in 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 the, the homosexual community and other places. Domestic violence is rampant. In that, and so you end up with uh, violence that's inflicted upon uh, folks uh, in that realm, and and so the lifespan gets shortened. Twenty years, by the way, is the is the demographic. You're taking twenty years off your life if you if you're going to pursue that homosexual lifestyle, and that's twice the smoking uh, impact of ten years. You take off ten years off your life through smoking, and yet when is the Surgeon General going to put the warning label on? The not. I'm, I'm you know, how do you put the warning label on on the the homosexual marriage? You know the homosexual lifestyle and that because it's twice the impact of smoking, and yet we we have the the labels where they are. In any event, so this is what we're looking at here. Um, our days on this earth are numbered. There is uh, our days are numbered before there's even one of them. We're told Psalm 139:16. Our days are numbered, but keep in mind it's it's more detailed than just a single. Uh, a number that is a spectrum of numbers. It's a range of numbers that's included in God's plan, in in God's uh, directive plan, and God's contingency planning. And God is wise enough and, and smart enough and omniscient enough to have a whole spectrum of of individual numbers that represent our uh, our decreed days, our extended days. If we walk well and honor our father and mother, we can have long life and length of days. Or if we die the sinner to death as a loser. That number is in there too. And God's divine decrees has encompassed that whole spectrum. And so I like to teach not only X number of days, uh, a lot of pastors teach X number of days, I like to teach X, Y, and Z number of days that that factor in the, the shortened span and the lengthened span based upon the contingencies that God's foreknowledge has uh, anticipated and provided for. So yes, our days on this earth and physical life are numbered, but that number clearly has contingency factors 
for lengthening or shortening the primary number. We also discussed that uh, believers and unbelievers alike prior to the cross descended to Sheol, but the Lord made clear that they are sorted into one of two compartments. Luke 16, 19-31 is, is the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And, uh, and I think we're clear on that. All the dumb jokes about, you know, when you die, uh, are you going to go upstairs, are you going to go downstairs, are you, when you die and you get to the pearly gates and St. Peter says, why should I, you know, why should I let you in? And whatever, okay. Some of them are amusing, some of them not so much. But all of them, though, are built on the idiot premise that that there's some kind of a, a, a quiz or some kind of a test or some kind of, you know, as if St. Peter's got nothing better to do than to, you know, be the, the gatekeeper or whatnot. Um, but, you know, any moron that wants to question my right to be there, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to slap him, you know, with sanctified slapping, you know, because, uh, you know, I have every right to be there. I'm, I'm royal family of God. I'm in Christ. And, uh, whether it's an angel or St. Peter or whoever. Okay. Now, that arrangement does not happen today. Today, we, what the Scripture says today, absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. Right? Absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. So uh, when, when, when somebody dies today, when our loved one dies today, they're not in Sheol. They're not in Abraham's bosom. They're not looking across a great chasm at, at all the unbelievers in torments. They are face to face with Jesus Christ. They are in heaven itself. And what happened was, was that Jesus Christ led captivity captive. And that's what we're going to study today. And uh, that paradise is no longer in Sheol. You know, Abraham's bosom, paradise, these different expressions, the whole realm got transferred. Paradise is now in heaven. And we can prove that as well. Because uh, Paul said, when detailing that thorn in the, in the flesh passage, he said, I know a man who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. He was caught up into paradise. And so the testimony from the New Testament is paradise is now in the third heaven, whereas paradise used to be in, in Sheol. Jesus told the thief on the cross, truly, truly, you know, today you will be with me in paradise. So that wasn't the third heaven. Not today. On Good Friday, Jesus didn't go to the third heaven. Jesus went to Sheol. And we studied that and the three days that he spent in the grave and the, the preaching that he did in, in Hades and, and, uh, and uh, the different things there. Jesus doesn't ascend until Sunday. Does he go to uh, the third heaven? Does he go? But he said, today you will be with me in paradise. So we put these things together and all these things, I think, you, you have to put them together into a matrix of, of, uh, of, uh, of, of understanding. It's, it's deductive logic. You have this Truth, this truth, this truth, this truth. You synthesize them all together, and uh, you can you can do this all as an inductive study, and then you can take these separate premises and put them together deductively, and uh, <clears throat> and you have it. All right. We ran out of time last week as we were discussing the reason why this took place. This arrangement was necessary until the justifier was demonstrated as just. And that until sin was removed, until the justifier was demonstrated as just in Romans 3, verses 25 and 26. And we can take a look at that again here this morning. Don't mind seeing this over and over again. It's part of what uh, we deal with, uh, like in uh, 
the Philippians class when we realize our Father is the God of show and tell. <laughs> our Father is a God who loves to demonstrate things. He loves to walk people through and, you know, what do you see? I see a basket of figs. You know, what do you see? I see a plumb line. What do you see? And He walks people through what they see. God is a God that demonstrates and shows. And so the cross is in fact a demonstration. The church age is a demonstration. We are a parade. We are a triumphal parade in the church age as the Father is displaying His victory in Christ. But Romans 3 talks about this, how uh, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Now Old Testament saints were redeemed, Old Testament saints were born again, Old Testament saints were justified, but they were justified in anticipation looking forward to a finished work that God had promised to do. And so um, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. It is a public display. When He hung on a cross it was a public display before men and angels alike. And uh, when the veil of the temple was rent in two it's a public display that the righteousness of God is satisfied. That uh, this work is done. Jesus said it is finished and and, uh, the Father rent that veil in two and and uh, so many things. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed. And so every Old Testament saint and every sin prior to the cross, every Old Testament saint, they were forgiven, but it was a passing over, it was not a removal. See, it was a forbearance. But you cannot separate forbearance from satisfying God's righteousness. And I just want to make sure we're clear on that because I think there's a snare. There's a snare that's out there that God, well God is love and God wouldn't send anybody to hell and God doesn't like, you know, and so the idea that because He's love that He can wink at sin or He can excuse it or He can, well, you know, that's all right. And He can he can be forbearing. And yes, He can be forbearing. But He can only be forbearing up to a point Forbearing finally has to give way to the satisfaction of righteousness. And if righteousness is never satisfied, then forbearing can't last forever. Forbearing can't go indefinitely. Forbearing has to ultimately be resolved. And thank, thankfully He resolved it at the cross. He, he, the forbearing had a limit. The limit was when the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. And, and so, you know, it's, it's the idea that God is long-suffering. He is slow to anger, but He eventually gets there, right? He's, he's long-suffering, but that's not eternal. That, that uh, when he, he will eventually reach that point where wrath must be expressed. And um, it's all of the, the I think, the, the pluralism of our wishy-washy generation wants to deny any personal accountability anyway and so they have this God is love and everybody gets their thing. Well, you know how evil that is? It just makes me want to vomit. It, it turns my stomach. Because they say, well, if we all get there eventually then the cross is a waste of time. Why go to the cross? If we all get there anyway, even those who hate God and reject God and reject the gospel, if we all get there anyway, then the cross was, was a farce. And, and God is masochistic in torturing His Son to put Him through whatever. And I, I just want to abide by that. I tell you, that's, to me that's, that's fighting words. Let's, let's, let's have it out, <laughs> theologically speaking. All right? Let's just, you know, because you're going you're gonna to diminish the cross? 
Not me, I'm going to magnify the cross. And we're going to have this out right here, right now. So, pluralism is, is just a satanic evil. God is just, and He displays Himself as just, as the justifier. And so he, in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. But He has to demonstrate His righteousness. For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time, so that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He's always been just, but now He's displayed undeniably as just. And when every knee bends, when every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that's going to be in the full recognition that He is just. And that they're going to be thrown into the lake of fire for all eternity, and it's just and fair and righteous for God to throw them in the lake of fire for all eternity. That, uh, that becomes undeniable. So, although Jesus subjected Himself to the penalty of death, He could not be subjected to the power of death. And the neat thing about Sheol is Jesus uh, has victory. Is that Jesus was not abandoned to Sheol. He's going to experience it. He is going to travel there after his physical death, but he's not abandoned to Sheol. And Psalm 16 is the prophecy of David with respect to this. Psalm 16.10 I'm excited for Pastor Cliff. He's going to have a chance to go to Kiev. And his first time ever to teach at Word of God Bible College, his first time ever to, uh, uh, and he's not taking my place. He's not teaching Daniel Revelation. He's teaching uh, cults. He's teaching the module on the cults, so, uh, which every class gets every other year. Um, anyway, so it's, uh, I don't know who taught it before, but Pastor Cliff gets to take it this time. That's exciting. But when he goes to Kiev, he's going to have a tour of the Lavra. They've got a, a, a church there, this big, fancy Orthodox church. It's centuries old. And uh, underneath the church are the catacombs with the monks, the, the bones of the monks, the buried monks are underneath, these holy monks. And much of the, the legend and tradition of these monks comes as a perversion of Psalm 16. So let's look at it. Because the, uh, the prophecy here it's a miktam of David, and uh, he's totally in, in God's hands for protection. There's uh, people that are out to get him, but God's on his side, so he's just worshiping here. That's the point in Psalm 16. And um, so he says in verse 5, The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. Isn't that beautiful? You cycle doctrine, you memorize scripture, you dwell on the word of God, you dwell in fellowship with the Lord, and then you get these counselors that follow you day and night. You get these counselors that you don't have to pay $90 or $110 a a billable hour. You get uh, free of charge, these counselors are with you. It's a powerful thing. I have set the Lord continually before me because He is at my right hand I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. 
Now it's Holy One singular, not plural. And that's where the Orthodox Church gets it wrong. That's where the monks and the, uh, the, the thing is totally off the rails because they have the Holy Ones that they declare to be non-decayed. And there's uh, all these legends about these monks. And it's, it's sickening actually. So at some point a, uh, a, a holy monk uh, died and he was martyred in, in Kiev. And they, they buried him. Uh, but then it's for some, somehow he got dug up and it was, it was observed that even a year later that he hadn't decayed. Wow! He hadn't decayed at all. He was just like he was just fresh as the day that he that he died, you know. And I tell you, if you've ever looked at a at a at a, at a dead person, um, you can tell they're dead. And then a day later, and two days later, and three days later, it doesn't get any better, right? We had to keep a guy a dead guy by the anyway. There's another story. In Desert Storm, we had a, a murder investigation, and uh, and the. The body laid there for, for three or four days in the, in, under a tarp on a highway um, in the hot sun of Kuwait. And it was nasty. It smelled, I mean, you couldn't get within 20 feet of this thing. Um, and so, and back to these monks, they, would, they, would, they said, wow, this monk, he has not undergone decay. He must be holy as per Psalm 16.10, that Yahweh... So it's the testimony that they are now saints and they could be beatified and they could be prayed to as you pray to the saints and you venerate the saints. And so they, he gets his own card. He gets his own um, like a magic card. He gets his own Pokemon card. He gets his own baseball card. Okay, But these are icons in the Orthodox Church. And these icons, these little uh, saint cards, okay, and you can trade them, and you can collect them, and you can do things with them. But ultimately, these icon cards then become your uh, transmitter for your prayers to the saints. And so you pray through the icon. They help you focus your prayers to the saints. And then when you really want to show your veneration, you travel to where those saints are buried. See? And, that's, and there's different saints buried in different churches in different places all throughout Ukraine and Russia and, and the Orthodox the Orthodox world. So, um, the uh, and, and then this one guy started a trend. So then it started, then there was a second one, and then now there's a bunch of them. There's 40-something saints now, monks, holy monks, that are buried in these catacombs. And you learn which monk you need to pray to. Okay? Because, and there's whole websites that'll detail this for you if you want to look it up. Um, and, and so you find, well, my problem is, my problem is I worry. I worry, I'm a worrier. I worry about family, I worry about money, I worry about whatever. So you go to this place and you look it up, oh, this monk here, monk uh, Theophilus or whoever, this is the guy for you because he was really, really good at dealing with worry. Okay? Or your problem is lust. Well, you want to go to this monk over here. Your problem is anger. You want to go to this monk over here. If, If you've got a sin issue, they have a monk for you. Okay, and and so it's it's that's where you got to go, and you pray to them, you ask them for their help, and and they will pray for you, and they will get the Virgin Mother, you know, to pray for you, and and that's how it works. Okay, these guys outdo Catholicism in spades. I mean, they really do it, 
And so then on high holy days like Easter and other high holy days, and plus the monk has a holy day for the day he died, his martyrdom day is his holy day. You, uh, you then travel to his, to his uh, burial site and you kiss the bones. You kiss the bones. That's what it's about. And, uh, and yeah. And I didn't do any bone kissing, but I did, went down there and saw the different catacombs and they walk you through. It's like a Disneyland thing and they got you going through a, a chain of, of things. And, um, and you pay your fee, of course, and the more you donate, the more devotion you're showing to the saints. And then kissing the bones is the ultimate devotion to the saints. And I, was, I saw people do it, and I just uh, couldn't do it. Wouldn't do it. Why would I? I have no reason to kiss bones. Plus, they are very decayed, <laughs> okay? They're bones. They weren't bones the day the guy died. They're bones now. And uh, they secrete this oil kind of a thing, um, which they call the, they have a term for it that relates to the term for oil in the Greek. Um, anyway, chrisma, I think they call it chrisma. But that's that. It's in a perversion of this verse. Now, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And this is prophetic. David is speaking about himself and he had an anticipation of resurrection, but he's also speaking prophetically of Christ. And Christ not only is going to have a resurrection, but he's going to have a resurrection such as he doesn't stay in the grave and he does not decay. His body is going to walk out resurrected and glorified and there is there are no bones left in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. That, uh, that's an empty grave. And it was uh, an empty grave uh, on, that, on that day which uh, bother the Sanhedrin no end. All right. And so this refers to Christ. And if there's any question that refers to Christ, uh, it's very clear uh, in Acts 2 and Acts 13 that uh, this is not applicable to the literal David. So let's look at Acts. Acts 2.24. This is Peter's sermon on Pentecost. And he said, Jesus, you put him to death. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed him through him in your midst. God was doing it through Christ in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, remember the contingency plan, God knows who's doing it and when, you nailed to the cross by hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Impossible for him to be held in its power. Unbelievers that physically die are still held in the power of death. Their soul spirit, their, their dead human spirit is testimony that they're held by the power of death. And so uh, Scripture gets quoted, including Psalm 16 right here in verses 25 through 28. Verse 29, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David, he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. His tomb is with us to this day. His body's still there thousand years later okay and that's uh the message there in acts 13 i think he references this again that david served the purpose of god in his generation and uh 
And again, it's Psalm 16. Therefore he says in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. For David, after he served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep, was laid among his fathers, and underwent decay. David decayed, Jesus did not. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. And it's curious to me, I think even those three days in the grave, the body was pristine, the body was undecayed in uh, fulfillment of that. Romans 6, 9, this power of death. Death doesn't have power over us anymore. We walk in the newness of life. If death has power over us, shame on us because we gave it that power back. We uncrucified what God crucified. We should, uh, we should be walking in the newness of life and not subject to, to, uh, to sin anymore. That's the whole point in Romans 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? If we give ourselves over to the power of sin, that's on us. We let it happen. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Therefore we've been buried with Him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. That's what it's about. Let's do it. So uh, if we have, and we have, been become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him. Our old self was crucified with Him. You know that old, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Yes, you were. Your old self was there and nailed right with him. How about that? Retroactive positional truth in Christ. In order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we are no longer slaves to sin. For he who has died is free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer is master over him. So we have a promised resurrection, but presently, why is death master over us? The death that he died, he died to sin once for all. That's our hymn of the month, once and for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Don't wait for your future resurrection. Live this life now. Consider yourself dead to sin but alive to God now in Christ Jesus. And do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. Verse 12. When you give sin power that it shouldn't have, you're letting it reign. And verse 12 says don't let it. Don't let it. Alright. So that's uh, what we're looking at there. Now a couple of subpoints under this. He was subject to the penalty of death. He could not be subject to the power of death. He was not abandoned to Sheol. In fact, he arose in victory and he led captivity captive. He arose in victory and led captivity captive. Nobody prior to Jesus Christ could depart out of Sheol in their own sovereignty, in their own merit, in their own worth, in their own right. Everybody in Sheol was subject to Sheol either in torments on that side or, to be fair, 
in Abraham's bosom in paradise on the righteous side. Even they, righteous and forgiven, sin had not yet been removed. Not until the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. And so only Jesus Christ can arise in victory and lead captivity captive. Psalm 68 now, in a passage that's quoted in Ephesians 4. Psalm 68. (laughs) Can you imagine? You know, I put a lot of inmates in jail and I've watched a lot of inmates in their cell talking about busting out, busting out. I'm like, uh, okay, let me watch. (laughs) You know, how are you going to bust out? Show me. Um, But can you imagine? Here's Jesus Christ, victorious, and yet he submits to one final indignity because there's more work to be done in the grave. Right? He says it is finished. So why don't he just hop off the cross and start blasting all the unbelievers and bringing in the kingdom? And that's what I would have done, right? Why, why does he say it is finished and then breathe his last? Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And he breathes his last. We were redeemed by his spiritual death. Why did he subject to physical death? Okay, Because there was work to be done in Sheol. So he breathes his last. He's carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And boy, I tell you, I hope that scene's on DVD. I want to watch that one. Uh, you know, you, if you thought John the Baptist felt unworthy when Jesus came to get baptized, how do you think Abraham felt when Jesus arrived at Abraham's bosom? <laughs> All right. So in Psalm 68, um, we have this, and, and there's a large context that surrounds this and in um, so many great things. I'm not going to read all of this, but it's a there, there's, a, there's a, a battle, there's a victory. Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered. Let those who hate him flee before him. So uh, sing to God in verse 4, sing praises to his name. Um so many neat things here. Verse 7, O God, when you went forth before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earth quaked, the heavens also dropped rain in the presence of God. You know, think about it. Mount Sinai there was the earthquake. At Calvary there's the earthquake. It could be earthquakes in the tribulation, earthquakes at Armageddon. Um, verse 11, the Lord gives the command. The women who proclaim good tidings are a great host. So, you know, they got, got through the Red Sea and the women had their t- singing and tambourines and dancing and so forth. Jesus comes through the cross. Why was it women that were first at the tomb? All right. What is proclaiming good tidings in the aftermath of Calvary? Good news. Gospel message. What's going to be the good tidings and the gospel news at Armageddon? The kingdom is here. All right. Um, when the Almighty scattered the kings there, it was snowing in Zalman. Man, there's a doctrine. Verse 15, a mountain of God is the mountain of Bashan. A mountain of many peaks is the mountain of Bashan. Remember, it was strong bulls of Bashan that surrounded Jesus at the cross. In Psalm 22, there's doctrines connected to Bashan. He centered on uh, the, the fallen angels and the rebellion against God. Why do you look with envy, O mountains, with many peaks? at the mountain which God has desired for His abode. Surely the Lord will dwell there forever. 
Remember, Satan was lusting after a particular seat in the recesses of the north, and he had no right to it. The chariots of God are myriads, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them as at Sinai in holiness. You have ascended on high. You have led captive your captives. You have received gifts among men, even among the rebellious also, that the Lord God may dwell there. And so in context, in this, in this psalm, in context with his victory comes his ascension with his captives. Ascended on high, you led captive your captives. You have received gifts among men. And so Jesus gets to claim every soul that the Father has given him, even those souls that uh, were left in shale in the Old Testament times. Jesus goes and gets them. All right. And then there's more. And it goes past that. It's a long psalm. Um, but now, here's his victory. And in Psalm, he's receiving the gifts. He's receiving Noah and Daniel and Job and all the Old Testament saints and Abraham and David, and he's receiving gifts. And he gets to lead captivity captive. He's going to relocate paradise from Sheol to the third heaven. He's going to take all the Old Testament saints with him up into glory. That's why we talked about how many ascensions did Jesus have? How many times did he ascend to the Father's right hand? Because he had to lead captivity captive. He had to cleanse the heavenly temple. He had to have his final ascension when he sat down at the Father's right hand. The, you know, did he do all those things in one single ascension or did he have multiple ascensions in those 40 days? You know, How many trips does it take to bring all the groceries in from the car? <laughs> how many ascensions to empty out Sheol, how many ascensions to, uh, to cleanse the heavenly temple, how many ascensions, and, and uh, because it's the final ascension, he sits down at the right hand of God and he doesn't come back for, for another trip. He doesn't come back until he comes back at the trumpet to take us home. Anyway. Um, Ephesians 4. Now there's a subtle change here, but quite significant as uh, in Psalms he's receiving gifts, in Ephesians he's giving gifts. <clears throat> and I think this is a marvelous adaptation of an Old Testament text, adapting it now to a church age reality that was mystery in the Old Testament. So um, we have the church age and uh, we should be walking in a manner worthy of the, of the calling with which we've been called. And uh, we have a responsibility to one another in the church age that is deeper than any uh, responsibility believers had in the Old Testament. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were also called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And so we're all one in Christ, but we're all different in the sense that we're given these different gifts, different measure. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And so the quotation takes it from receiving gifts to giving gifts. I don't have a problem with that. I believe God the Holy Spirit inspired both Testaments and He's free to quote Himself and He's free to change His own quotation. 
if the illustration requires it, there you go. Adapt it for our application. And it uh, doesn't change the doctrine from Psalm 68. That doctrine still stands for what it is. But this doctrine now stands for what it is. Now this expression, he ascended, what does that mean? Except that he also descended. You know, you can't ascend until you've descended. And in fact, had he not undergone kenosis, had he not emptied himself, left the ivory palaces, come to the earth, he never could have ascended, right? He could never have gone to the cross had he not descended. But the earth is not as low as he went. He went even lower. He went under the earth. It's like not only was he made lower than the angels, he was made much lower than the angels. He came down to human level and then to Sheol itself. So this expression, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? Sheol is always described as the depths of the earth, the uttermost depths of the earth, the lower parts. Heaven is above, Sheol is below. He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. So when he ascended he not only just came to the earth, he had a 40 day resurrection ministry on the earth, but he also ascended and he ascended to the third heaven, and, uh, and there he is, above. So that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. There's only four some as's in that verse. And even though uh, really there's a lot of smarty pants that are trying to... Um, a lot of arguments about the Granville Sharp construction and a lot of other things. Regardless of whether you want to argue that or not, it's not arguable that there's four some asses in this verse. There's only four some asses. And I think the Granville Sharp rule does apply, even if uh, that's an argument some people are going to want to die on that hill. Anyway, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, the building up of the body of Christ. So we have gifts. He gives gifts. And uh, we taught this, it's the Holy Spirit gives the gift, but Jesus Christ gives the gifted believer to local churches. He gives the pastors and the evangelists to local churches. They're a gift. They're a gift from Christ to that lampstand for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. That's a key difference there. All right. So, he arose in victory. He led captivity captive. He now sits at the right hand of power, the right hand of the majesty on high. He now sits at the right hand of power, the right hand of the majesty on high. The session of Jesus Christ is what this referred to. Death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and session. The session of Jesus Christ. We use session to reference uh, somebody that's seated, like a judge is seated. I want to get this judge seated on the Supreme Court so that he will be confirmed and seated before the next session begins of the Supreme Court. And that's uh, all in the news right now. Jesus Christ is in session because he's been seated at the right hand of the Father. And that session is a, is a unique circumstance for the bride of Christ, for the church. He was not in session victorious for the Old Testament saints, but he is for us. We have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So he now sits at the right hand of power. And I tell you, the impact of Psalm 110 and all the places it gets quoted, the impact of this, the blessing of this as it was promised, 
in Psalm 110, which gets expanded in Hebrews, and we've addressed it a lot in Hebrews. Psalm 110. Another Davidic psalm. Why? So many of these Davidic psalms. Because <laughs> David was the biggest type of Christ anywhere in the Old Testament. David saw first advent. David saw second advent. He had a prophetic vision of the cross from a first person perspective. Actually in the vision, hanging on the cross. Watching the mockers mock him. So the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The session is finite. It begins and it ends. It it begins as he's seated in victory. It ends when the Father says, go forth and rule in the midst of your enemies. And he comes back at second advent. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew. That's another passage I think that speaks of garments that speaks of worshiping in holy array and aspects there. We were talking about that while you ladies were praying. We had a Hebrew question about holy garments. So that's where he's sitting. And he's sitting in session. And this is his role as the apostle and high priest of our confession. And it doesn't stop there. So we have, a, we have kind of a king motif. We have the, the scepter, which is uh, political sovereignty. We have ruling in the midst of your enemies. We have voluntary service on the part of His people in the day of His power. Remember, it's not just the revelation of Jesus Christ, it's the revelation of His bride as well. And then the Lord has sworn and changed His mind, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. He is the king and he is the priest, a king priest, which is not possible in the Old Testament. The king is Levi, or is uh, Judah. Political uh, sovereignty is Judah. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah, politically. In the Old Testament, priesthood is, is Levi. Priesthood is Aaron and his descendants, the tribe of Levi. How do we have a king and a priest at the same time? Well, it has to be a different priesthood. It cannot be the Levitical priesthood. It's the Melchizedek priesthood, we're told. And, uh, and right here is the information we have in uh, the Old Testament about a Melchizedek priesthood. <laughs> you know, It's like Melchizedek is seen in Genesis 14 when Abraham has communion with him and, and uh, Melchizedek blesses him and Abraham uh, pays the tithe to Melchizedek. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. It's undeniable. And yet Melchizedek disappears. We don't see him for the rest of Genesis, for the rest of the Pentateuch, for the rest of the giving of the law. Moses comes, he gives the law, no reference to Melchizedek anywhere. 400 years goes by and here's David writing a psalm and he mentions a priesthood of Melchizedek. You are. The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Wow. Exciting. Tell me more, David. Never does. That's all you get. You don't even get verse 5. You get verse 4. And in the rest of Psalm 110, the rest of the Old Testament, this priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek, nowhere 
Nowhere in the Old Testament. You get to the Gospels. Jesus meets a lot of priests. No order of Melchizedek. Not until Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews, Psalm 110.4 gets unfolded in a glorious way for the bride of Christ because we are the priesthood in Christ in this order of Melchizedek. All right. He sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. Matthew 26.64 Here's Jesus fulfilling Scripture. He's going to be the silent lamb before it shears. He's not going to say a word. He's uh, obedient to the Father. He's going to be silent until Yeah, he stays silent, he stays silent, he stays silent until the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And placed under that adjuration in the name of the living God, he can't stay silent. Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Sitting and coming, sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And so, hey, I rest my case. Case closed. This man's a blasphemer. Put him to death. That's, that's what their conclusion. Little do they know. Acts 2.34. We were just in Acts 2 not long ago. <clears throat> So David died, was buried, his tomb is with us to this day because he was a prophet knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne. He looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Therefore having been exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has both poured forth this, which you have seen, both see and hear. So he received the Holy Spirit, he gave the Holy Spirit. This is why both the Father and the Son give the Holy Spirit for the church age. And it was not David who ascended to heaven, but he himself also says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord said to my Lord, Therefore let the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. <laughs> what a tough message. We did that, didn't we? What do we do now? Wow. Here we are waiting for our king to come and he came and we killed him. What do we do now? He's sitting at the Father's right hand until his enemies are the footstool. Wait a minute. We killed him. Does that make us the enemies? Are we in trouble? <laughs> What do we do? I think we're in a lot of trouble here. So when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? What do we do? We crucified the Christ. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father until He's going to come and rule in the midst of His enemies and we think that might be us. What do we do? Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. That's not a gospel message for us today. That's a message for the ones that crucified the Christ so they can be ushered into the church age. So that's Psalm, that's uh, Acts 2. How about Ephesians? 
Ephesians 1, 20-22. See, we got such power available to us. No Old Testament saint had it. We do. The surpassing greatness of His power towards us who believe in accordance with the working of the strength of His might, which He brought about in Christ, in Christ, when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things in subjection under His feet and gave Him His head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. What a Savior, not abandoned to Sheol, not abandoned to Sheol, seated at the right hand of the Father, and we benefit as He is head over all things to the church. And then Hebrews, Hebrews 1, 3, the prologue to Hebrews. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions, in many ways, you know, an obscure Genesis 14, an obscure Psalm 110, verse 4, many portions, in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom He made the ages. He is the exact radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature, and upholds all things by the word of His power. When He made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. Not abandoned to Sheol. Victorious. The only one that arrived in Sheol that was not subject to that power. Having become as much better than the angels, He has inherited a more excellent name than they. goes all the way down to verse 13. To which of the angels did he ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Not one angel. Satan lusted after that throne. It wasn't his. The father never said, here you go, Satan. Sit at my right. No. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? The destiny of angels is to serve us. Chapter 12. Therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Why do we fall short? Why do we give up? Why do we stop running the race? We need to endure. Take up our cross and follow Him. Despise the shame. We're seated at the right hand of God. We have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And we're right there. He's seated at the Father's right hand. We're seated at the Father's right hand in Christ. It's a very powerful thing. All right. Well, all of that's a lot of detail to pull out of Hebrews fifteen twenty four, but um, the reference there to shale just sparked something, and I hope it's edified. We'll move on uh, in a couple of weeks, three weeks. We'll move on to uh, verse twenty five and uh, tackle the rest of chapter fifteen. Father, I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for your truth, for the blessing that we have to assemble together and receive instruction. 
We give you the praise and the glory, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.